All right, good morning, everybody. Uh, so as Jay stated, I'm going to be talking about the significance of the virgin birth today. And so we're going to be looking at Matthew 1, 18 through 25. So you can follow along on the screen or if you want to turn in your Bibles. Um, for those who are just visiting, we usually read out of the, or we always read out of the NIV. So that's what I'm going to be looking at today. So <clears throat> this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had a mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate the marriage until she gave birth to, the son, to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. So before we discuss specifically what the significance of the virgin birth is, I kind of want to set the groundwork for why we chose this text. Right out of the gate, we see this is how the birth of Jesus came to be. And that word birth there is translated to Genesis or origin. And so this is literally the origin of Jesus. To hone in a little bit further, quoting Jay from last year, this is about the birth of Jesus. Really, it's about the conception of Jesus. And he had a miraculous conception such that he is the Son of God. So that's why we, we chose this particular passage. Because this particular passage helps us see how amazing the virgin birth is. And this is, this is one of two accounts in the Bible of the virgin birth. The first here in Matthew and the second in Luke. This one is the account from the perspective of Joseph. And so the first hinting we see of this miraculous conception is in verse 18. It says, as Matthew states, it is... His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Now notice it says his mother. It doesn't say his mother and Joseph, the father. It says his mother was pledged to marry Joseph. And so that helps us to see that this is the mother. It doesn't say anything about the father yet. And this is, this is the first shedding of the light onto that. And we go on to see though in verse 19 that it says the husband of Mary. Now this could be confusing if you're sitting there and you, and you don't know about the background of the betrothal period in this time. But if we look mother, between Mother Mary and the husband Joseph in the text, it says the word pledge. And that word pledge really means betrothal. And the betrothal in the Jewish time is much different than dating it is now. Now you can go and you can ask somebody on a date, and if it works out, great. And if not, you break it off and you move on with your life. 
But here in this time, when you entered into a betrothal, you entered a legal covenant. You signed a paper, and it was, you were committed to that person. And in that time, you would be in a, in a period where you would not see each other. If you did, it would be very uh, scarce, and it would be up to a year, and it would show the loyalty to, loyalty to each other, the, the purity of the relationship of both people. And John MacArthur explains it this way, By Jewish custom, a betrothal signified more than an engagement in modern sense. The Hebrew marriage involved two stages, the betrothal and the marriage ceremony. A contract was made and was sealed by payment, which was paid by the groom or his family to the bride's father. The contract was considered legally binding as soon as it was made, and the man and woman were considered legally married, even though the marriage ceremony and consummation often did not occur until a much, as much as a year later. The betrothal period served as a time of probation and testing of fidelity. So even though they're in this betrothal period, even though in the text it says the husband of Mary, they have not come together yet. They have not even gone to this marriage ceremony. And so as you can understand, to Joseph, this is a shocking thing. You know, we, he's sitting there and, and hearing that his betrothed is pregnant and, and he doesn't understand because it's obviously not from him. And as we move on to verse 19, we see that Joseph's reaction to finding out. It says, because Joseph was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So in his year time, he finds out that his fiance is pregnant. Now, we don't know, and the text doesn't say how he found out. It could have been that he found out from a family member. We know that Elizabeth, Mary's cousin, knew, and it could have been a game of telephone and passed along to him. Mary could have told him herself, or the obvious signs of pregnancy could have shown, and he could have figured out that way. Regardless of what happened, the text goes on to say that Joseph was a righteous man, and he dealt with it in that way. Now, that's how the NASB and the ESV puts it, that he was a righteous man, but I think that this translation is helpful because it says he is faithful to the law. Because some people have looked at this text and said, okay, well, Joseph is sinless, right? And so maybe that's how Jesus got his sinlessness. Because a lot of people also would say Mary was sinless, and that's how Jesus got his sinlessness. But we know that all of us in this room are sinners and fallen short of the glory of God. And so did Mary and Joseph. And so that's not the reason why Jesus was seen as righteous and sinless. But it's because Joseph was dedicated to the law. He wanted to honor God. He loved the Lord and he followed his commands, right? And if you have any understanding of the Bible and you have read the Old Testament, you may be thinking, well, I know Deuteronomy, and he's definitely not following the law to a T, because if he was, then that woman would be taken to the doorpost of her father's house and stoned to death. But D.A. Carson helps us a little bit paint a, a picture of what the first century Jewish culture would do in this circumstance. He says that at this time the stoning in this first century wasn't as common of a practice. But there was three options for you if you caught somebody in adultery. You could, A, stone the woman to death, as we've already discussed. You could, B, shame her by divorcing her publicly. Or you could have two witnesses and divorce her quietly. 
And you'll remember that though it is not as common, it still was in practice because if you have read the Gospels, you would remember that Jesus was brought an adulterous woman from the Pharisees. Now, I understand that that text was the Pharisees trying to trap Jesus, but if you think about who the Pharisees were, they were ones who would try to obey the law and show their righteousness and piousness from how they, they reacted to, towards the law and acted towards the law. They were trying to show their own self, their own righteousness through this law. And yet, Joseph shows mercy. And so after this, we go on in the text to verse 20. And the angel comes to Joseph and he tells him not to be afraid to marry, to marry Mary as, and take her as his wife. The angel here not only tells him that it is okay, but he also helps him to get rid of any concerns that he has. And how does he does it, do that? He goes on to say, what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. This right here is the pinnacle of this passage because this right here is the angel telling us of the miraculous conception. When we look back at history and in different cultures and in different religions, and there's stories of virgin births, not the virgin birth, but of virgin births. And John MacArthur in his commentary on Matthew uh, gives us a couple of those. He says, Romans believe that Zeus impregnated Samuel through contact and that she conceived Dionysus. Babylonians believe that Tamaz conceived in the priestess Semiramis by a sunbeam. At the conception of Buddha, his mother supposedly saw a great white elephant enter her belly. Hindus have claimed that Vishnu, after reincarnation, descended into the womb of Deviki and was born as her son Krishna. There is even a legend that Alexander the Great was the virgin born by the power of Zeus through a snake that impregnated his mother, Olympias. Now, if you're hearing all this and you think that's outlandish and crazy, it's because it all is. And you may still be sitting here thinking, well, so is the miraculous conception. But I'll have you think with me back to Scripture in some of the miracles of birth that have happened through it. If you go back to the Old Testament, we remember that Abraham at 99 was told that he was going to have a son, and he laughed. In verse 17, 17, he laughs. And then in verse 18, 12, his wife, who is also old, laughs because she thinks it's comical as well. And yet they have a son, Isaac. And you move a couple pages forward to Genesis 29, and Rachel has not had a son yet. And she is wrestling with this, and she's crying out to God, and she's saying, God, why? And God hears her cry, and she is given a son. You go to Luke, and Elizabeth, who is of old age, is also able to have a child. And even Samson and Samuel's mothers, who were barren, were given these children, blessed by God. These were all miracles but nothing compared to the miraculous conception. I think we can sit here and we can say, well, these all happen, and I'm grateful that God has blessed these older women, and I'm glad that God has opened these barren wombs, but this miraculous conception is a little bit different here. And you're right, it is. 
But the angel tells us how this is made possible. He tells Joseph what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And in the account of Luke, we look at it and it says, the angel tells Mary that the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now this does not mean what some Muslims believe in that God impregnated Mary. But what we can look at is Genesis 1-2 to help shed a little bit of a light on the scenario where it's talking about the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters and how God made something out of nothing. God created. He is outside of creation and he made all the laws of creation. And so we must also assume that he is not confined to the laws of creation. After telling Mary these things, he goes on and he tells Mary about Elizabeth. And he says, your cousin is in the sixth month of her pregnancy. And again, we we know that she was of old age. And he goes on after that and he says, for nothing is impossible with God. This is true. God, there's nothing impossible with God. And so we need to wrestle with this, but we also need to trust that what God's word said is true. And I do think that as we go on to the next verses in verses 22 and 23, it does help us even grow in more certainty. For it says that the Lord said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. So if you are still sitting here doubting and struggling through this, or if you're a believer here and you know this to be true, there's also another truth here that we can sit in and praise God for. This verse here is quoting from Isaiah 7.14. And Isaiah 7.14 is written 700 years before Jesus was born. So not only did God say what he was going to do and do it, but he did it 700 years before. He told us 700 years before. And Christ came by miraculous conception. And that is so amazing that God would be so gracious on us to tell us what he was going to do before he did it. As we get to the end of this passage, I want to talk about Joseph real quick because it is important that we know where he fits into this story. Is it just that he is the husband of Mary? Well, Matthew would tell us otherwise. In verse 21, it says, the angel tells Joseph to name the baby Jesus. Now, why does he do that? Well, in Jewish culture, if a man was to name a baby, he was showing adoption. And so, Joseph followed what he was told. In verse 25, it says that once the baby was born, he named him Jesus. And so David Platt sums it up pretty well. He says, Physically, this makes Jesus Mary's son, born to an adoptive father. Legally, Jesus was Joseph's son. Ultimately, Jesus is God's son. So Jesus is conceived of the Spirit without a physical father, making him God's son. And so, back to the original question and what 
we're going to be talking about today, what is the significance of the virgin birth? I summed it up in three points that I, I kind of pulled from verses 21 through 23. And those are, all of this took place for God to be with us. All of this took place so that God could save his people from their sins. And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord said. Now, for this first point, all of this took place for God to be with us. I honestly just took this from Wayne Grudem's teaching in his systematic theology on the topic. And if you have time, I would suggest that you look at it um, because it's very helpful. But what he says is this. He says, we see that through the virgin birth, it made it possible for the uniting of Jesus' full humanity and full deity, which makes possible Christ's true humanity without sin. To explain it a little bit better, I want to define two theological terms. The first one being creationism, and the second being traditionism. Now, creationism, defined by Roland McCune, states that this position holds that the soul of each human is immediately created by God and joined to the body, either at conception, birth, or at a time between the two, while the body is procreated immediately by the parents, the soul is created immediately, directly by God. Now, there's a couple issues with this perspective. The first being, and I think this one should stop everything else in its track, although there's a lot of people smarter than I am that believe this perspective, that if this is true, then God is responsible for creating sinful souls. Right? Because if God is putting the souls into these babies, then those sinful souls are his because of him. So I believe that that should stop us right there. But to go on further, another reason why uh, this, I believe, is not correct is because if this is true, then God is continually in, out of nothing creation. Meaning that God created everything out of nothing, and on the sixth day he rested. And so if he is still creating souls, then he is still in the process of doing out of nothing creation. And I believe that that is another reason why we can take that off the table. Lastly, if this is true, then the psychological traits from parents would not be able to be passed on, right? Because if God created the soul, then how are we getting our psychological traits from our parents? But the other side of that is traditionism. And John MacArthur explains it this way. The soul is transmitted from parents to children by the natural procreation process. Just as a body is. While God is certainly man's creator, and while Adam's body and soul were created directly by God, the constitution of all persons after Adam is passed through God-ordained human procreation. Simply put, man is fruitful and multiplies, and the body and soul are given directly from parents, which helps us understand both how God was able to come to be with us and how God is able to be without sin. Because though Mary was physically Jesus' mother, and so he was able to take on flesh, God the Father gave his only begotten Son, who was holy and blameless. Jesus has always been God, but his body had a physical beginning. Right, And so that's how the two were able to come together. And that's why I believe the traditionism 
perspective is true because God gave his son for the world because he loved us so much through the Virgin Mary. If you have more questions about that, you can ask Jay after because he's pretty smart. (laughs) To the second point, which I believe that this leads into, this took place so that he could save his people from their sins. Throughout the whole Old Testament, we see God always coming to the rescue of the Israelites. Over and over again, he does this. And throughout that whole Old Testament, he promises that he is going to save the people from their biggest enemy, our sin. But there's only one way he can do that. Through his son. He has to do it himself. So, we know that we are sinners. We know that we all have fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that, we deserve the wrath of God. Because Christ came to earth as a man and lived a perfect life. He was able to take on the wrath of God once and for all, for all of us. And he died, and he was raised from dead on the third day, and he defeated it all. Galatians 4, 4 through 5 says, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. And Romans 8.3 says, For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be be a sin offering. Only God can do that. Not a son of Adam, not a son of Joseph, only the son of God. Lastly, this all took place to fulfill what the Lord had said. Now, I left out prophet. If you look back at verses 21 and 23 through 23, it says, this, is, this all took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. I left that out because I wanted to take all of Scripture and, and put it into this point. We know that if the virgin birth didn't take place, then the prophecy of just Isaiah alone is not true, voiding all of the Old Testament, right? And there is many more cases in which this is true. But also, if this didn't take place, then the gospel is totally void, right? Because this is how he came to be with us. This is how he came to save us. So we can write off the Old Testament, we can write off the gospel, and we can write off the rest of the New Testament. But we know this is true. We can stake our life on it. God tells us that this is the origin. This is the center of the miraculous conception. So what do we do with all this? Well, in regards to God being with us, for those who don't know Christ, God is with us. He's a personable God, one who condescended to our likeness to save us. How amazing is it that the God who created the universe humbled himself to save us from our sins? To the Christian, God walked through life and has gone through the same trials and temptations we have. 
He lived an ordinary life in that he lived like us, though his life was anything but ordinary. Even now, as we do not see him physically, he is with us. And this should bring us great comfort. In regard to saving his people from their sins, to those who do not yet know Christ, repent and turn to Christ. Only through faith will you be saved. And for the Christian, never forget the glory of the gospel. It all started here at the origin of Christ. Remember it daily. And to end, this all took place to fulfill what the Lord said. And so, to the skeptic in the room, read this front to cover. I know, even for myself as a non-believer, that there was questions I had. There was moments where I said, well, this doesn't line up with this. But nothing in the Word contradicts itself. God never contradicts himself. And so if you read the Bible front to cover, and if on that journey you have questions, there are some great men in this room, Jay and Jason and Jim and Kevin, and many other believers here that love the Lord who have studied his Word and would love to answer those questions. But God wants to show himself. He's a personable God, as we've seen, and he he gave us his word because he wants to speak to us. Another resource in passing for you guys to look at, Jay mentions this time and time again, is got questions. And this is helpful for the believer and the non-believer. Last time I looked, I think it has like 700,000 questions it answers. So you can go on there and you can type in a question you have about something, and it's a very helpful resource. But to the believer, read the Bible over and over. Not only will it grow your faith, but it will help those who are skeptics. Look to the example of Joseph, who not only followed the law, but when the angel came from God and told him what God said, he woke up and did it. He's a good example for us. The virgin birth matters because through it, God has come to be with us and save his people from their sins. And in so doing, fulfills what scripture says. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that is true yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We thank you that we read here in Matthew that this is where it started. God, this is good news. We thank you for what your son has done for us. We thank you for what you have done for us. That you took on the wrath so we did not have to. God, help us to marvel and worship you now because of this great miraculous birth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.